when you have hierarchical power, even if they understand your vulnerabilities, it is not fair for them to have to carry that load. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and we are so stoked that you are joining us on another episode this week. We are talking to Liz Kislik. She is a management consultant and executive coach and a frequent contributor to the HBR and Forbes. I actually came across her TEDx, why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it. I think the video has received more than a quarter of a million views. Now, I watched that video and I knew I had to have her on the show. Now, Liz specializes in developing high-performing leaders and workforces. And for 30 years, she's helped family-run businesses, national profits, and Fortune 500 companies like American Express, Girl Scouts, solve their thorniest problems. And here's the thing. That's why I really wanted the opportunity to get Liz on the show because everyone talks about problem solving as being a key and critical skill. But what I've been thinking about and what I feel is quite rare, which people that work with Liz rave about her for, is her ability to identify the problem in the first place. And that's what we wanted to unpack on the show and much, much more. Now, Liz's work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Business Insider, Bloomberg, Business Week. She has numerous articles in the HBR. She's been included in Harvard Business Press Book's Guide to Motivating People, and she is just a general badass, and we are super happy to have her on the show to complete an amazing resume. She's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches Initiative, which really does bring together the world's top coaches and thinkers. And she received her BA from Yale and earned an MBA from NYU. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Liz has a very down-to-earth New York style. We talk about her grandfather, her upbringing, what really shaped her in the form of the entrepreneurship within her family that she was exposed to growing up in New York, you know, being a woman. We talked about her career and how she ultimately has moved into the space that she's currently at. It was also a quite interesting conversation because Liz challenged me on my own style and ways of working, which I really enjoyed because quite frankly, I'm learning as well. So it was really a pleasure to have Liz on the show. If you haven't heard about Liz, you want to find out more about Liz, everything about her will be in the show notes. I really recommend you go and check out that TEDx video, why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it. Anyways, folks, we are out. We're going to leave you in the capable hands of Liz. If you do feel compelled to, please rate this podcast, give us a review, let us know what you think. Liz, welcome to the Ultra Habits Show. I'm so happy to be with you, RJ. I've heard 
your work. Uh, I know that you're part of the, the Marshall crew, uh, and I have come across your work on multiple podcasts. And, you know, we're all getting back to the physical environment at work. You know, we've been kind of separated, living in our own worlds and our own heads. And I thought it'd be really good to have you on the show to talk about how we can get along better now that we're all together at work and how we can, whilst we're converging upon each other now, how we can do so in a way that creates a good working environment and how businesses can now leverage, you know, the fact that we're working together, we're in the office together in a way that could help them create a competitive advantage, right? But before we mm -hmm. go into that, we were just talking about your grandfather who's served a major influence in your life. Let's talk about how you came up. Where are you from, Liz? I was born in New York, in New York City. Um, I grew up mostly on Long Island, and uh, I'm back here now. I've lived here much of my adult life. I, the only times I haven't been here on Long Island when I was born, not for college, went away to college, thank goodness. And um, then I lived in Manhattan for a few years after I graduated school. Hmm. What, why do they call Long Island Strong Island? <laughs> Did you, have you ever oh, heard that? Yeah, I, I think that was after Hurricane, well, it wasn't Hurricane, Superstorm Sandy. I think that's when it was. We were really hit hard, bad. Yeah, right. Rough time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're expected to be kind of feisty. Is that right? I, I get that. That's that's the answer I was looking for. I was actually basing <laughs> you on that one. So um, now in one of your interviews, you know, you, you said that you you came up with privilege. And in, in many ways, it was a very humbling conversation because you kind of acknowledged how you came up and being born to a certain family. So. What did your parents do? Like, were they in education? Were they professionals? What was the story there? Uh, my parents met at Columbia Law School, and um, they were uh, contemporaries of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to give you some sense of that. And um, my mother chose law school. She didn't want to go to law school. She wanted to go to grad school. I think she wanted to study history. But my grandfather, who was self-made, was only willing to pay for a law degree or a medical medical degree. And she knew she couldn't handle med school. So she went to law school. And um, the funny thing ab about that experience, so she met my father because she had a book he needed to borrow and it turned into a whole thing. Yes, totally. Um, when she graduated from law school, she was not allowed to walk on stage with the other graduates to collect her diploma. She was one of only seven or eight women in the class, and she was pregnant with me at the time. And she was, quote, showing under her gown, her... Um, graduation gown, and that was not acceptable. So um, she lost something there, but I've always said that I graduated prenatally from Columbia Law. 
You know what? I wonder. I wonder if subconsciously how that kind of set the pace for you. You know, like when you're sometimes these stories really shape us in our trajectory. And so, let, let's talk about your your grandfather. So, was he a, a patriarch? Like, what was his story? Did he come out of? Because I know you're Jewish. Like, did he did he come out of the 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 war? Was he kind of brought up during that period? Was there so very different story? Because my grandfather. Um, was a Jew born in Turkey. Wow. So my mother's side of the family is what's called Sephardic Jews mm-hmm. um, who were exiled from Spain and Portugal, in this case, Spain, in the 1400s. And uh, this family moved to Turkey, which is where my grandfather was born. And he came over here as a young child Um I think he made it through eighth grade, but that was only because there was a basketball team. Otherwise, he never would have stayed in school. And his first job was in a factory cleaning toilets. And uh, then he had other factory jobs with other factory owners and learned the business of uh, dressmaking and when he was an adult and older and older and older, uh, he and a couple of partners owned and operated a ladies' sportswear business is, I think, what it was called. And that was the family business. And um, he was a character. He really was in some ways a patriarch, yes, and in some ways larger than life. Um, So I'll tell you two things about him. One was he learned who his people were and he would advance to a number of the women who worked for him their pay before payday so that they could go home, buy what they needed to buy, um, so that any of the husbands who were drinkers or gamblers could not get to the money until his employee had handled her household needs and tucked it away. Um, And the other story about him that I really love. So he was an owner Mm -hmm. and um, the ladies garment workers union was a very strong union and periodically they would strike his factory as well even though he had very good relationships with his employees. And my grandmother would bake these cookies and put them into tremendous jars. And he would walk up and down the picket line, handing out cookies because these were his people. They may have been picketing him, but they were his people. And um, he really felt strongly about them. Which is interesting because in effect, he's managing conflict. He's managing people intuitively so did that impact you in a way that guided what type of work you were going to do like how did you determine how did Liz evolve into who you are today I would say that he was the reason I wanted to go into business as opposed to going to law school as my parents had uh When I graduated from college, almost all of my friends went to grad school. But 
I felt like work was where you could make things happen. And that seemed exciting to me. So, um, and it's been true. I got to say, RJ, it's really been true. It's It's been great because you see how people are and what they need and how with a little help, everybody can do better. And it's opportunity and excitement all the time. Hmm. There was, we were just talking offline. Um, I heard the, your, your grandfather paraphrase, I think Joe DiMaggio's quote around, it's better to be lucky than smart. And that was super relevant because this morning I took a, a test, an aptitude test. And I've never been good at tests. Like everything I've had or everything I've accumulated, uh, post-grad degrees is that is always been through throwing hard work at it. Like I, mm -hmm. I just don't do well with things that are black and white. And I did this test and I think I completely botched it. And I was like kind of feeling stupid, right? Like I'm like, you know, I'm supposed to be better than this. But in those environments, it doesn't give you the opportunity to kind of work for it because it's right. kind of a 20 minute, you're either there or you're not. Do you know that you botched it? Or are you just assuming that? That's a good question. The test was such where it didn't, it was about speed. So it didn't penalize you for getting answers wrong. It wanted to see how many answers you could answer in how many of the 50 questions you could answer within 20 minutes. I prepped for it. And then when I did it, you know, I got hit with that anxiety that I always get hit with when I tested. And I just felt like I didn't perform as well as I could. So I get your point. Like my perception is that I botched it, but the reality might be different. But as someone that likes to achieve high, you know, and, and like, you know, generally I feel over time when I'm performing towards, I'm an ultra endurance athlete. And so I run very far distances and I do better over long-term and I judge my performance after these runs. I'm like, yeah, okay. I did well. When I sit with how I performed on this, I don't necessarily feel that, but again, it, you know, I could be wrong. Right. And the other thing is we need all kinds of people who function at their best in all kinds of conditions, but in general, being able to go for the long run, means you have the chance to be lucky, you have breadth of opportunity, and you actually get to accomplish more, as opposed to potentially flaming out. Endurance is of real value. So why are you so hard on yourself? I, I generally come up well in, in, a, in an endurance piece, right? And I kind of know my strengths. I think it's the perfection, not the perfectionist, because I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist. I think it's the achiever in me that is judging my potential misperformance. <clears throat> and so I was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, they're going to think I'm stupid, right? Oh, like, sure. So, you know what I mean? Like, they're going to be like, how did this guy do these degrees? Like, well, I did it because I threw 21 hours at it a week, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, because you did the work. Yeah. 
why is that less than someone for whom it's easy? How's your tap dancing? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is the thing. We are all different and we bring different, not only skills and strengths, but beliefs to what we do. And it is a shame that we are so hard on ourselves when we think we are less in any way, because there's always going to be somebody who's more in some way. And when we knock ourselves down, it's actually harder to do the work. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And like just reflecting, you know, uh, you know, and I'm sure it's relevant for the audience as well, right? Like, you know, I knew this, this test was coming up and I prepared to the best of my ability and set the conditions, took the time uh, to prepare, took the test at the right time of day based on when I'm at my best. Um, and I, I, I had a good crack. And I think I take your point on board, you know, judging myself and how I could have done better before I even know what the results are. There's no real value there, is it? So if we look at my grandfather quoting Joe DiMaggio, in a way, the lucky then smart oddly anticipated the whole idea of emotional intelligence as opposed EQ as opposed to IQ. Being smart is not enough. It, it, it was really, I had a guest on this show. His name's Darren Jacklin, right? He's from Canada. He's got a group of companies. And he grew up in regional Canada in Saskatchewan. And they put him in special ed his whole schooling life. I mm. think they thought, he said they thought he was retarded. And that was in the era where if you had certain learning disabilities, they just, you know, they put you in a class. His range though, and his depth when I was talking to him was extraordinary. Like his, how fast his mind was in his ability to see connections, exploit those connections, connect the dots was off the charts. I, I had never experienced any one like that. And if you put him in front of a test, he could possibly fail. Right. And it's, it's an interesting overlay. And now we know the value of neurodiversity, that there are many different ways of not only thinking, but of how the brain functions. And there are advantages to different ways. Mm. So let's, let's move towards your work. So, you know, you're working with organizations in a very broad context. And what I take away from your work is you're helping organizations operate more harmoniously through their people, right? How did you arrive at that work, Liz? Like, how did you get there? What was the problem that you saw that needed to be solved? So I'm smiling at your use of the word harmonious because for some people, they would interpret that as my caring most 
about whether or not people get along. When in fact, I do care about that, but probably what I care about most is that people are able to bring their best to apply it to the work so that the real work gets done, whatever that happens to be. And I certainly have a preference for harmonious over acrimonious, but there is value in not always agreeing. You can learn more from the disagreements. You find greater opportunity. I'm not talking in any way about the kind of harmony that looks beautiful on the surface and hides dissension and resentment and bitterness underneath. That's no good. That's, that's really the worst. So when I was a very young supervisor one summer and I was managing a small work crew of uh, telephone representatives, and this was many, many years ago, and it would annoy me my father is a very punctual person, and I was always at work early and ready early, et cetera. And it would annoy me that people would roll in right at nine o'clock and then take the next 10 or 15 minutes getting the coffee. <laughs> and the thing that really, really, really galled me was finding out of the communal supply the pencils that they liked and sharpening them. So I, who was responsible for X number of full hours of work, was losing, you know, a quarter hour times, however many people were that way, every day. I didn't like that. So I started sharpening their pencils and leaving two beautifully sharpened pencils in every workstation every day. And in a weird way, that may have been my first exposure to the idea that if you change the working conditions, you change the work experience. And that just telling people, come on, come on, people, we got to go here. That exhorting people is not the issue structuring the environment works much better and helps them feel good. I mean, maybe surprisingly, and maybe it was a more innocent time, they were really happy to have those sharpened pencils. They felt like I was doing something for them, which I was. And we both felt better about the work. And that was just a crucial lesson to me in going forward. Um, and the work I did after I graduated, I worked for a small privately owned marketing agency. And every six months I would be promoted because I was looking for things that were undone or that weren't going well and tried to find new ways to handle them. And so I would be recognized periodically and then elevated for doing the work I was already doing. You could not have paid for this education because very often I was actually in over my head. 
when I was 23, I was managing a call center of 300 employees, which really, that's like send a child to go play in traffic. It seems crazy. And it is the job I struggled with the most of all the jobs I had because you couldn't get enough of it right every day. There were always unhappy people. There were always things going undone. And that was horrifying to me. So I came to want people to work well together because I cared so much about the work working. And what I learned, and some of this was from my grandfather, was if you pay attention to every person and what they need and what they are like, you'll be able to work with them much better than if you just have, you know, one approach to everything and you expect everybody to do that. It's not practical. Mm. Is that difficult in terms of managing your energy and scalability when you're trying to customize your approach? Like, do you feel absolutely exhausted managing 300 people kind of customizing your approach? So that's a brilliant question. Um, and points up almost immediately one of the failures of the situation. I was exhausted all the time, all the time. I would go home and cry a lot. Um, and part of why I was so exhausted was I felt I was never doing well enough. And one of the things that we all need as humans, um, and this is Teresa Amabile, um, we need to feel we're making progress. Whether it is improving at the thing we're doing or accomplishing more, learning different ways, we need to see that we're getting better or more or something like that. And I was not seeing that even though I was learning new lessons all the time. Overall, I still felt like it wasn't enough. And so a combination of my looking for what else could I do, because keep in mind, every six months there was this shift. And also, I had a wonderful guy in the operation who actually liked operations better than I did. And he was meant, he was gifted. He was meant to be an operations manager. And so over time, he took over the operation. I'm, we didn't do this on our own. Of course, the senior leadership was involved and in charge of us, but he got the operation. I became responsible for all of client services. That was much better because I knew how to bring things to him to get implemented. He knew how to deal with the things that broke my heart every day. It was a wonderful partnership. So how did you then start to evolve your own theories and determine that you wanted to go off on your own practice? Like, did this, was this a, a life's journey or was this something that happened relatively quickly over the course of your career from there? So what happened was I was progressing in this firm. Um, I was a VP at 23. 
I actually went to business school part-time at night for six years because I wasn't even credible. I looked like I was about 16. <laughs> it, you know, it, was, it was just very challenging. Um, and having the MBA at least helped a little, you know, a little bit. Um, but I had been at this company for about eight years, a little less, and the owner died. And there was no real succession plan. And um, at that point, I'd been doing enough different jobs. So the widow made me executive vice president. Um, I'm not leaving out a whole bunch of story, obviously. But she brought in an outsider to be president, and he was backed up by investors. And that's how the firm was going to move ahead. But it went in a, du a direction that um so this was in the 80s which was when telemarketing got a bad name for itself and deservedly so and this company had been a high-end boutique beautiful thing i mean it was real marketing and not the horrible commodity stuff that wrecked that pursuit but this guy coming in came out of that kind of commodity telemarketing. And it was clear to me that it was going to be bad. And I left. Um, and within a week, and I didn't really have a plan at the time. I was actually pregnant with my first kid at the time. And it wasn't a great time to be interviewing if I was going to do that. And I didn't want to run another agency operation. And I didn't really want to go into a large bank and run their customer service or anything like that. It just didn't seem good. So I had been out less than a week and I got calls from consultants in the field who had heard I was out and wanted to subcontract work to me. So I was working within a week and I never stopped. What I did do was migrate the nature of the work so that I shifted over time from telemarketing, which is how I came up because I didn't like how that was going in the world at large, to customer service, um, call center management. And then what happened, and RJ, this will make sense to anybody, everything that goes wrong in a company sooner or later ends up in some aspect of a customer transaction or conversation. You change something in your billing cycle and it upsets people. They make calls, they email, et cetera. You change something in your product, ends up there. So everything that was the result of a bad decision, a conflict internally, all those kinds of things, I would see them in my client's contact centers. And any client who was willing to hear about more than just whatever the project I'd been hired for would then let me support other areas of the company when things weren't going so well. So then I was working in all areas of all different kinds of companies and really shifted over time to all kinds of leadership development and strategy development and team 
stuff and and being a sounding board for C-level executives and all the things that were really about what's the best way to work here (laughs) so Mm. that we can do together what we say we want to do. It's interesting because your background is quite there's a lot of range, right? You're, you're, we're talking about marketing to kind of organizational design to problem solving process development, because it seems to me that you're actually someone that would be really good at looking at a business and seeing ineffective process. And then the impact of that on the people and the way that those people then translate the service to their customers, right? So yep. what do firms generally engage you for? Like, what's your favorite place to play? Hey guys, it is RJ here. And we wanted to take a hot minute to thank you for all your continued support of the show. We truly do love you guys, man, and value all the support you have given us over those last two seasons. So we want to make our impact more direct for you. So do this, screenshot this episode and make a post and tag us at Ultra Habits. Use hashtag Ultra Habits and we will give you not only a shout out on the following episode, but I will follow up with you for a 10 to 15 minute conversation to talk about habits and what you can do to make your habits much more impactful in your life. Anyways, we're gonna leave you back in the capable hands of the guest. Enjoy the rest of the show, peeps. Now I have to think if they're actually the same thing. I'm not sure. Um, I often, particularly now, given the various things I've been working on in my TEDx and et cetera, I often get hired now with the assumption that I will be able to resolve some longstanding conflict that has been simmering under the surface and people are at odds and it doesn't matter what the fiats are, it never goes away. So. There's a bunch like that. Um, Sometimes it's just an executive says, I know we could do better. Please come see what can we do? Because in addition to being able to spot ineffective processes or practices, I can also see where they are leaving opportunity on the table. And that's very useful because everybody feels better when they can make it good. And sometimes that helps then pay for the bad things you have to get rid of. Um, So that's really something. Uh, Sometimes it's a kind of help us figure out why we're stalled. We think we're doing the right things, but we're not seeing the growth we expected to see or support for kind of visioning into the future and then making that real. Um, And a lot of times there are leadership development assignments. People at the mid-level have potential, but something's holding them back. And whatever the coaching process is internally hasn't been enough. So 
What can we do with them? We've already invested in them. We'd like them to work out. Can you figure out what to mm. do? In terms of your earlier comment around conflict being the potential for good opportunity, because obviously through varying opinions, if we can debate and exchange ideas gracefully without killing each other, there's a potential for innovation. How have you seen this done well? And how have you seen this done disastrously? <laughs> I'd, I'd love to understand that. So it's a little different everywhere, you know, because it depends on what the norms have been and the culture has been and who the actual players are. So it's not that it's the same and that the range is always the same. You know, we develop these habits of mind and we think what we think because it's what we've thought. So one of the disastrous things is when people come into a discussion about what could we do, planning for next year, how do we make this initiative work better, whatever it is, with a position. And that position is often either protective of something. My people can only work in thus and so a kind of way. And I'm sticking to that because I'm protecting my people. And it feels moral to me. That's one kind of thing. Or a position that this is the only way we can be successful in the marketplace, either because it's what our competitors are doing or because it's not what our competitor, whatever it is. But it's this position. And when people feel they have to protect their position as if their position is tied up with who they inherently are as a human, that's when they're really inclined first to defensiveness. And then often, depending on their ego strength and how grounded they are, they end up on the offensive to try to knock out somebody else's position. When really those positions may have nothing to do with what the real opportunities are or the real problems that the organization is facing. So what works well is to get people talking about what is working and often to diagram that out. And then what could be better? And to diagram that out. One of the things that I miss so much with remote work, because Sometimes I'm still able to be on premises, but often I'm working remotely with people on video or in phone calls. You can't whiteboard the same way. Being able to map out what people are talking about could be a process, could just be assigning concepts to different buckets and saying these things go together and these things go together. And these things are not either of those, and we have to figure them out. Just getting people to think differently about the stuff they think about every day and not be penalized for it and not be attacked for it, that helps people think. And then they get excited when they see, oh, we could try this little experiment. 
if you can point people toward things to try and not things they'll be judged on sort of right out of the gate, you can get a lot more movement. Yeah, this is a lot in that, Liz. I think a couple things come up for me. One, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, like one of the things that I struggle in business with, and it's something that I do, I'm in head of growth in terms of the business I run, is being authentic and open and kind of free whilst having an agenda. And I really struggle to overlay those two things because I'm a very, when I get lost in my agenda, I push it, right? Like it's, it becomes death, like it becomes subconsciously life or death, I think, to a certain degree. And depending how aware I am in any given moment, you know, I may become overly assertive. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that comes up for me with this piece that you've just spoken about, and it was a theme that came up continuously on season one, was this concept of psychological safety, right? Like how free are we to share ideas, to experiment within an organization without fear of retribution or, you know, shit goes pear-shaped, we're going to be, you know, hung out to dry. So those two things, I think, come up for me, you know, when just listening to what you said is like, well, how can I go into a session with less of an agenda and more open, but also harness psychological safety for those around the table? whether it be junior staff to senior staff. And I think within my business, um, I run a logistics company here in Australia. We're a uh, disruptor in terms of we're a non-asset-based firm competing with asset-based firms. You know, we're privately owned. I'm one of the partners. We're still partner run and we're challenged all the time by juniors. It's fun. It's great. It's Australian culture too. But like, how do we maintain that as we grow, like and get bigger, right? Okay, you packed so much into that, you're going to have to remind me as we go through. I know I'm not going to remember it all. So the first thing was about the agenda, following the agenda, needing the agenda, and wanting to be open at the same time. And somebody who is very agenda-focused likes things resolved. There is nothing wrong with that. It seems to me you have fantastic self-awareness about that. So one of your agenda items could be pre-agenda or what I like to think of as phase zero, which is a reminder to yourself to stay open, that your goal for the meeting is to cover the points while staying open. So that's a prompting for yourself. That's prep for your brain. And you can encourage either a single person in the meeting or all of your team members to remind you kindly if you are not being open. There is nothing like asking your team to police you. It is so wonderful because if they do it, and you hope it's not the same person all the time, You know, it's not like they needed a shop steward to be the one to say, uh, RJ, RJ, 
you said open and you are definitely closed. But you want everybody to be able to say, RJ, did you want a real discussion about this or do you just want a quick answer? And particularly if you give them questions they can use to prompt you. So it's not like they're criticizing you. You've asked them to do this. You've even given them the language. Then you have a partnership around staying open and completing the agenda. So that one doesn't actually see, seem so hard to me. If you're willing, and it sounds to me like you are. And your team will tell you if you were really willing or not. Mm. Okay. What was the second part? I don't even remember. Psychological safety. Oh, psychological safety. Okay. So perfect example. There's much more psychological safety if you say to your team, I recognize that I have this weakness. It's not even what I want, but it's a habit. And that's what our brain likes. It likes to do the thing we've done before because we've done it before. That's what's comfortable. It's automatic. So I would like all your help. And here's what I want you to remind me. And then in effect, and here's what I need somebody else to say if I shut down the person who reminded me because I'm not allowed to do that. So you set up the dynamic to make it safe. I'm going to give you a familial example. When my son was little, he would tell me what was upsetting him. But if it was something that my husband did, he wouldn't necessarily know how to tell him. He would say, Mommy, you tell Daddy. <laughs> well, I wasn't having that. <laughs> so I would say, I'll help you. Because the point is you want a person to be able to speak for themselves, even if they're four. So we would walk into wherever my husband was. And I would say in a particular tone that my husband recognized, Daddy, there's something we need to talk about. So he was on warning, you know, he knew, okay, I have to pay attention. It wasn't like a kid saying, daddy, daddy. I cued him and then I would prompt my son and I would facilitate. So what was the other thing you were telling me? Daddy, are you understanding? Do you want to say this back? And this was how we would do it. And everybody would learn better over time both the child and the adult, how to have this conversation. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's creating partnerships. Please let us help each other have this conversation. The more you do as partnerships and teamwork, the less it is anybody's place to make anybody else feel bad. And that's true whether you have hierarchical power or not. So one of the big underlying assumptions in what I just said, RJ, because I don't like for people to go play in traffic, is the understanding that we are all flawed human beings, even though we have all kinds of expertise, bring great skills, um, commitment, dedication, all those things, we're all flawed human beings, and we will 
do the most, accomplish the most for the organization and for each of us if we are aware of our flaws and try to help each other. And if that's the underlying premise and people can make good on that, the psychological safety will pretty much take care of itself. Mm. <clears throat> everyone being committed to bringing them, everyone being committed to bring their best self to improve and be aware ultimately is a default and byproduct will create that psychological safety for others, right? Yes, because then we recognize we all have bad days. So even if you're impatient about your agenda, I can be compassionate with you about that, even as I ask you to remember your commitment. I don't have to feel resentful about it. And theoretically, because we've had practice with this together, I don't have to feel afraid either. Even if you are really cranky and frown at me in that way that might shut me up if I didn't know you. It's interesting as I reflect on my team, my junior staff around here, they, um, they see me go from zero to 60. I'm a very intense person and they can feel my moods and whilst I can be hard <clears throat> or result focused, they also see me quite vulnerable. And I think they appreciate that. Like they'll come up to me and, you know, someone will kind of be rubbing the back of my neck and, you know, it'll be a junior staff saying, Hey, just wanted to see if you're okay. Or the other day, one of the junior staff said to the other junior staff, I think she goes, I think RJ needs a hug. Go give him a hug. So it's, it's quite nice to be able to be in an environment where I know personally, and it's interesting because this conversation has gone quite personal is how, um, Although I may be more gracious at certain times and other times, uh, the people within the organization understand where I'm really coming from. And even when I'm in the heat of my own intensity, it's never directed at them. Um, and I think it's always been a goal of mine that if I'm going to be as intense as I know I can be, I need to also be vulnerable. Um, and I think people it's easier for them to kind of accept where and how I come at things because of that, if that makes sense. So it does, and I'm gonna give you a couple of cautions. When you have hierarchical power, even if they understand your vulnerabilities, it is not fair for them to have to carry that load. So what I would hope for you is that over time, part of your vulnerability is invested in helping them cue you so that you actually work on being stronger yourself. Because you can be absolutely intense without frightening anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think what's happened for me, because I've gotten to my position of sweat equity through performance, my performance, I lose perspective that I'm a leader because I don't necessarily look at myself like one because I'm generally more involved with my performance still because my performance delivers a growth for the firm. But I forget that I'm actually in this position of leadership as well. Right. 
Does that make sense? So like it, it, totally. it, it, it's an interesting dynamic where I'm still learning how to manage the two, particularly because I'm building a team um, as well. So I, I think we'll, we'll start to round it out there. I, I generally ask my guests about habits, but I'm going to be a bit creative here and ask you, Liz, reflecting on your grandfather, in terms of the legacy he would have left in the form of habits, what would you say are some of the habits you would have learned from him? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So he prayed every day, which I do not. He really felt he had a direct line to God. And, and that supported him even on his bad days. And I'm not a person of faith. Um, but I do believe in the power of the universe. And I generally believe that, you know, we're not as, as alone as we feel. Um, and I believe in the power of community. So I think about strengthening those things all the time. He said, and, and this was something I said to you before we started recording. He used to say, thank God the day you can laugh. And he really came from nothing and created a comfortable life for himself and his family. And he knew how lucky he was. And that's part of why he liked the Joe DiMaggio quote. And I really try to look for the upside in everything and everyone all the time. And I feel I learned that from him, that even people you don't get along with, even people you think you don't like, there is value in them. And then he had another saying that just came to mind, which is the reverse, so that you don't just give yourself away completely. He sometimes would say, don't spit in my eye and tell me it's raining. <laughs> That's so, so there are times when you have to size up a situation and decide if somebody is on your team or not. They might be on your team and unskillful about it. That you can work with. But if they are actually against you, you need to look that in the face and decide what to do. I love those street smarts. Yeah. He said he went to the school of hard knocks. He did. He did. And, uh, and look at the legacy he's created. It's, it's extraordinary. I love, um, I'm a bit of a geek for unpacking people's history and making the connections in my own mind as to how someone came to who they are. And that's kind of what I've done with you, you know, in terms of just learning about your grandfather and how that's cascaded through to your parents and, you know, to who you are. So I, I, I think we'll wrap it up there, Liz. I really want to thank you for your time and the conversation and really appreciate how you took the conversation to me as well and challenged me. I really, that's unique and that's great. And I love that. For our audience that want to find you, where can they learn more about Liz? Oh, thank you. The easiest place is my website, 
um, www.lizkislik.com. And I'm sure it will be in the show notes, but for anybody listening, it's L-I-Z-K-I-S, as in Sam, L-I-K.com. And if it's useful to them, RJ, there's a free ebook there about the interpersonal aspects of conflict and 10 years worth of weekly writing on just about every management leadership issue, how you deal with all kinds of people and problems. And of course, they can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Thank you so much, Liz. So happy to talk to you.